Hello, Saubona everyone. This is Malia Warner and welcome to Power Principles, the podcast. On today's episode, we are continuing to the next chapter of Lies of the Magpie. Thank you everyone for waiting a week and indulging me while I rambled about my amazing experience traveling around the world to South Africa. Today we are getting back to it. This is episode 26, Lies of the Magpie, the story of my journey healing through postpartum depression and chronic illness, chapter 4. Lies of the Magpie, Chapter 4 I readjust the car visor, trying to block out the sun, but it doesn't help. I put one hand over my eyes against the blinding rays of light and squint into the distance, scouring the horizon for any indication about where I am. I've never traveled to Tucson before. Nothing about these surroundings is familiar, so how can I know if this is the road that will take me where I want to be? I need a sign. I'm not talking about a Moses and the burning bush kind of sign, though I wouldn't object to the appearance of a heavenly emissary bringing me a message of reassurance. Malia, you are indeed on the right path. Carry onward. But I would settle for a smaller, ordinary sign, like one of those basic green road signs with white lettering that reads, Tucson, 30 miles. My heart lifts with hope as I spy a green form taking shape straight ahead, I breathe deeply, warily assessing if that twinge in my stomach muscles is the start of another contraction or just a reaction to the pressure of keeping my foot pressed hard into the gas pedal. I wish the cruise control was working. The green shape is speeding towards me, and I slow a bit to be able to read the words. My heart sinks when the green sign turns out to be a lone barrel cactus, one of its sorry branches bent towards the road looking like a hitchhiker begging for a ride out of this desolate place. Burning tears resurface, and I imagine driving straight into that cactus, running it over and exploding it to smithereens. Where am I? Do I need to turn around? Should I call Aaron for help or just keep driving? Why do I feel like my life has become a continuous vigil waiting for validation, for confirmation that I'm traveling in the right direction? As I speed past, I think that I've seen that exact cactus already. I would think that I'm traveling in circles, except for the fact that I've been driving in a straight line. This scenery is so monotonous. Every new mile looks exactly like the mile before. And though the clock says I've been traveling for nearly three hours, it feels like I'm covering the same ground over and over and over again, making zero forward progress. I became a stay-at-home mother by default. I cringe at that term, stay-at-home mother. It's so cliched, so overused, so stereotyped. I hate being a stereotype. Aaron and I merged in the fast lane on the road to success, slowing down just enough to sign our marriage license. Laia gave us a beautiful wedding gift. For initially being opposed to Aaron, you'd never tell it from the card she wrote. You and Aaron are the two most amazing people. Together, you will conquer the world. My friend Claire also gave us a card. It read, Marriage is a journey of ups and downs. May your struggles bring you closer together. I liked Laya's card better. Aaron and I honeymooned, then hastened forward to catch up with school, work, 
and planning our wildly successful future. Aaron sold appliances at Sears while I finished not one, but two bachelor's degrees. Once I graduated, we moved to Provo, Utah, so Aaron could finish his college degree, and I began looking for my post-college dream job. I nitpicked through the job ads with arrogance. I was a scholar, an impressive and talented woman. Hadn't so many teachers, coaches, and judges confirmed that to me on multiple occasions? In the corner of my parents' basement were boxes overflowing with my trophies, plaques, and medals. I expected employers to line up, pounding down my door and begging me to come and to please bring my impressive GPA to work for their company. After weeks of job applications and interviews, I was discouraged. Our rent was due and I didn't want to break into my hard-earned savings account, built dollar by dollar upon hours of babysitting work. As it turned out, there were thousands of other recent honors college graduates, just like me, with a humanities degree, just like me, and no real-life work experience, just like me. In the real world, nobody cared about GPA and ACT scores. I ended up taking an entry-level telesales job at a startup company because it had a decent per-hour wage with a promising sales commission. I sat in a cubicle next to a 20-year-old who was working on getting his GAD with no plans to enroll in college. We were commissioned phone sales representatives, and we were selling leases for cyber retail space in an internet mall. Honestly, I didn't even understand the internet. This was 1997, and buzz around the World Wide Web was breaking decibel levels. Companies like eBay and Amazon were seedlings in a nascent forest of retail possibilities, sprouting up alongside the information superhighway. Yahoo was just budding. Google didn't even exist. My new company solicited business owners to expand their customer reach beyond the brick-and-mortar store by purchasing a virtual retail location. The potential was staggering. The number of possible customers who could visit your store on the internet versus the number of customers who could physically travel to and enter your actual building was mind-blowing. I must have been a convincing sales representative because I convinced Aaron that the internet was exactly where we should be. My inability to find a job that utilized my degree was a blessing in disguise. Destiny was showing us our future. And it didn't really matter what we sold. We could sell dentures to sharks on the internet. We would have hundreds, no, thousands, no, millions of customers visiting our online store every day. And if only a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of those customers actually made a purchase, we would be millionaires before our first wedding anniversary. Giddy with possibility, Aaron and I signed our names on the dot-com line. We had discovered the path to our dreams, an enterprise with both of us at the helm steering together towards our perfectly aligned common goals, arriving at the doorstep of success and the cover of Fortune magazine. We had a computer that I'd won in a beauty, excuse me, I mean scholarship pageant. But the rest of the business investment required two things I thought I'd never do. Break into my savings account and use a credit card. Figuring we'd have the investment paid off before the first credit bill came due, we purchased a combination printer-scanner-fax machine, which was cutting-edge technology. We signed a rental contract on a pricey credit card service, 
and purchased a virtual storefront inside Galaxy Plaza. We met weekly with our business mentor and began designing our very first website. Six months into our matrimonial union, we decided to expand our duo to a trio. And why not? Aaron couldn't wait to be a father, and I'd always wanted a big family. I meant what I'd said to Miss Wickersham so many years before. I planned to have six or seven children and do all those other things too. I figured I'd add a husband and children to my life using the same method my sister employs to add clothes, shoes, and purses to her wardrobe by squishing everything together to make room for more without removing anything old to make space for the new. The vision of my perfect dream future had always included a handsome Mr. Wright and several coordinating children, like acquiring an eight-piece set of matching luggage. Things at work started off with big promises and high hopes. Our company was doing well. We moved into a larger office space. In a sales contest, I won a 27-inch picture-in-picture color television with a light-up remote control. It was one of our few possessions. In our newlywed apartment, it sat precariously balanced on a two-drawer metal file cabinet. The taxes I had to pay for winning that television were more than my commission, and my following paycheck was zero dollars. By May, I was pregnant. Erin presented me with a wrapped box. I've never gotten a present on Mother's Day before. I read the hand-printed card. To the most beautiful soon-to-be mommy. I unwrapped the paper and lifted the lid. Aaron was so excited for my stomach to grow that he had gone out shopping and bought me maternity clothes. You are too cute, I said, giving him a kiss. I am the luckiest girl in the world. By June, our internet store had not made a single sale. Other than Aaron and I and a few of the other store owners from Galaxy Plaza, our internet store hadn't welcomed a single visitor. The rest of the store owners were in the same boat. Apparently, it takes nine months to grow a baby and only five months for a company to go under. At four months pregnant, I was unemployed. I found a temp job working next to high school dropouts on a packaging assembly line boxing and shipping books while I resumed scouring the help wanted ads and filling out job applications, hoping to get hired before my pregnant belly became too obvious. In October, after an hour and a half of pushing, our baby arrived. A goop-covered, squished ball of flesh, he appeared holding tightly to his umbilical cord like a little bungee jumper hanging on for dear life. Aaron, who had watched the birth process with fascination, excitement, and, I'm not going to lie, a tinge of horror, made the announcement. It's a boy. The corners of his eyes glistened moist. Aaron's dad arrived at the hospital in record time, ecstatic to meet the firstborn of his firstborn. He was a grandpa. After we got settled into a recovery room, a nurse took Danny for his first real bath. She brought him back an hour later, washed and bundled, but without the hospital cap on his head. The babies in my dreams had always been bald, so I couldn't have been more surprised than to see my son with a head full of fine, dark hair, styled into a handsome side comb, looking like a perfect gentleman in miniature. I accepted the warm bundle and brought him to rest on my heart. Danny... I'm your mom, I said, trying the title on for size. It is so nice to finally meet you. I unwrapped him like a Christmas present and examined every micro part of him from his teeny tiny toes to his itty bitty ears. My mother had always said I would recognize my own baby. My love would be instant. 
he felt strange and familiar to me, like a pen pal with whom I'd developed a distant relationship, but was just now meeting face to face. After family visited, Aaron kissed the top of my head and settled sleeping Danny in the hospital bassinet. I'm going home to shower and change clothes. I'll be back later. I rested my head against the hospital pillow of my inclined bed and watched Danny's belly rise and fall with each breath. Now that the commotion had died down, I thought back about the birth and wondered how I did. The nurse had left a folder of information on the stand. Sifting through the pages, I saw information on breastfeeding, circumcision, immunization, a chart to record each diaper change and the color of the contents. But where was my mothering report card? What grade did I earn on my delivery? How did I score compared to other first-time mothers? Did Dr. Wimmer dock points because my water broke three weeks early? Or would I only earn half credit because I'd showed up to labor and delivery the Saturday before thinking I was in labor, only to embarrassingly be sent back home? I didn't hear a sound or a knock on the door, but when I opened my eyes, Laya was there. She fluttered around the room, touching the equipment, pecking at buttons before perching next to the hospital bassinet to examine the bundled package inside. Ooh, he is beautiful, she said. How did the delivery go? It all rushed up and spewed out in a spray of words and emotion. I couldn't tell if my water had broken or if I had just peed at the bed. I didn't know whether to come to the hospital or not. And when we got here and they asked me if I wanted an epidural, I didn't know. I thought I didn't want to do an epidural and then I decided to get an epidural. And by the time I got the epidural, it was so late and the baby was already coming and I had to hold still even though I could feel the baby dropping. And then the epidural kicked in and I couldn't even move. I couldn't feel my legs. I couldn't feel to push. And the doctor had to tell me when to push and I regretted. I wish I hadn't gotten the epidural. I wish I could do it all over again. I didn't think you were going to get an epidural, Laya tisked. I thought you were going to go natural. I'd wanted to go natural, but the pain, oh my goodness, and I didn't know how long I was going to be in labor. My grandma was in labor for 24 hours with some of her babies. If I'd known it was only going to be an hour, I could have done it. I regret it. I wish I could do it over. Laya lifted the information card on the bassinet and read, Danny Aaron Warner, 6 pounds, 7 ounces, 18 inches, born at 4.45 this morning. APGAR score 7.5. She stretched her neck and tilted her head. Why did he score low on his apgar? Seven isn't that low, is it? I fretted. They marked him down for being born a little early, for not crying loudly, for not moving a lot, and his coloring wasn't what they wanted. I've been sitting here thinking what I did wrong. What did I do yesterday that made my water break three weeks early? Maybe I missed too many days taking my prenatal vitamins. Maybe I shouldn't have let the landlord spray the apartment for spiders. Keep thinking and you'll figure it out, Laya assured. They say mother's intuition is better than a medical degree. They did upgrade him to a nine on the APGAR after 30 minutes, I said, trying to console myself. That's not bad. No, that's not bad, Laya said, but ideally you want your baby to be a perfect 10. Laya examined Danny's head, looking closely for any flaws. You'll score better next time. It would be less than one year later when I would get my next time. Three months later, I was pregnant again. Immediately after Danny was born, Aaron and I both felt another child knocking impatiently on our family door, so loudly that we couldn't ignore it. For months, my birth control prescription stayed under a magnet on our fridge. Each time I passed and considered taking it to the pharmacy, I heard that persistent knocking. Aaron joked, maybe Danny was supposed to have a twin who got distracted picking sunflowers in heaven and missed the shoot. When we met Kate a year later, she was exactly our sunflower picker. I had found a new job as a customer service representative for the Bank of New York, ironic because I was located in a call center in Orem, Utah. I loved hearing those New York accents. 
Aaron took Danny to his daytime classes while I pumped breast milk in a stall in the women's restroom. At 5 o'clock p.m., we met at the front door of our apartment. I handed him the car keys, and he gave me the update about Danny's eating schedule and temperament that day. I think he's cutting a tooth. He cried all the way through statistics. As the months passed, I was so positive another baby was coming that I never even took a home pregnancy test. Instead, I scheduled an eight-week prenatal appointment and let the clinic nurse confirm what I already knew. We were, in every way, expecting another baby. Driving this deserted road to Tucson reminds me of that day nearly six years ago, the day Aaron and I packed our meager possessions into a U-Haul and left Utah for Arizona. Danny was nine months old, and I was five months pregnant with Kate. With a second baby on the way, Aaron and I had decided we'd better stop playing wide-eyed, naive dreamers and plant our feet in the real world. We didn't shut down our internet store. We abandoned it. Do neglected internet stores gather dust and spiders? It is, after all, the World Wide Web. Aaron had been hired by Goodwin Financial to open an investment office in a booming retirement community northwest of Phoenix. The sunlight reflecting off the aluminum sides of the U-Haul created the illusion that the moving truck was billowing in the wind, just like a covered wagon. Some of my ancestors had traveled this same stretch of road by wagon or on horseback as they settled the southern areas of Utah. I was not so different from those pioneer women traveling with one baby in the back seat and another in the womb. I had been married one year, ten months, and twenty-five days, and was venturing off to build a new life smack in the middle of Arizona's three Sun Cities. Sun City, Arizona was started forty years earlier by innovator and developer Dell E. Webb, who got his picture on the cover of Time magazine for creating a new way of living for the old by building close-knit communities with stucco houses, golf courses, bowling alleys, and a minimum age requirement of 55. No children, schools, or juvenile detention centers. The first Sun City opened its gate on New Year's Day, 1960. By the time we arrived in 1999, the original Sun City and its sister community, Sun City West, had both exceeded their housing capacity and the third, called Sun City Grand, was welcoming seniors from snowier states like Wisconsin, Nebraska, and Pennsylvania. These snowbirds lived out their winters on the golf courses and returned to their home states from May to August, when the numbers on the Arizona thermometer rose higher than the combined value of their age and their retirement account. Goodwin Financial wanted Aaron to open an office in Sun City Grand, but since we were 30 years too young to qualify for the minimum age requirement to reside within the walls of the Sun Cities, our only other option, unless we wanted to build an adobe hut along the Agua Fria River, was to live in Surprise. The city of Surprise, Arizona, was originally a settlement for families of migrant workers hired to grow and harvest cotton for the Goodyear Tire Company. Why a tire company wanted to grow cotton was a story we'd have to learn later. What we didn't have to wait to discover was that the topic of illegal immigration was hotter than the desert earth where migrants worked for little pay and no benefits. Cotton had been replaced in the fields by cabbage, grapes, roses, and orchards of orange and lemon trees. The first story we heard claimed the town got its name when U.S. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt looked out from the window of his personal train, the Ferdinand Magellan, equivalent to today's Air Force One and said something to the effect of being surprised anyone lives here. 
Other folklore credits one Flora May Statler, whose name appears on the town's first official subdivision documents, dividing one square mile into affordable housing for agriculture workers who, on signing the division of the land plat, said she'd be surprised if it ever became a town. The truth is far less colorful. It was actually Statler's husband, Homer C. Ludden, who named the land after his hometown of Surprise, Nebraska, in the same way that Peoria, Arizona was named by settlers from Peoria, Illinois. I know this because Peoria is where my sister Anise lives. The Arizona, not the Illinois. One thing I was most excited about this move was living closer to my sister. Anise and her husband Calvin were waiting in front of our apartment when our U-Haul pulled in. They helped us unload our meager possessions and arrange our hodgepodge of secondhand furniture. The card table with four folding chairs, which was our wedding present from my mom's 11 siblings and their spouses, a computer desk, our 27-inch TV, Grandma Betty's pink recliner, a rickety couch covered with a hideous fabric of blue and pink florals, which we affectionately called the floral beast. Upstairs, our master bed took the entire space in one bedroom while two cribs and a rocking chair filled the second room. It took all of two hours to set up but we were drenched hair to heels with sweat by working in the July heat. We unpacked our swimsuits and spent the rest of the night cooling off in one of the complex's two pools and slept with all the blankets kicked off and our borrowed oscillating fan blowing full speed in our upstairs bedroom. Danny and I would spend every day, except Sunday, for the rest of the summer in one of those two pools. Monday morning, I kissed Aaron goodbye for his first official day of work at Goodwin Financial. You'll be great. I smoothed the collar of his dress shirt and straightened his tie. You look very professional. He drove away using wads of Kleenex to keep his hands from burning on the steering wheel. It wasn't yet 8 a.m. and it was over 100 degrees outside. Maybe Danny and I would spend the day sitting in front of the air conditioner. I stared at the parking lot and the vista of my new town, so foreign to me. I felt like a stranger in a strange land. Inside the apartment, Danny sat in his plastic booster seat. Mo, he said, patting his mouth. I replenished his pile of Cheerios and walked to the sink to fix him a bowl of rice cereal. I plopped down at the card table, propping the side of my head up with my hand. Danny tried to stuff a handful of Cheerios into his mouth at the same time I delivered a spoonful of rice cereal, and the result was a mosaic of oat circles pasted to his chin, cheeks, and nose. It's just you and me, kid. I scraped a dribble of the mush off his chin with a spoon and refed it to him. What do we do now? My day was wide open. For the first time in my life, I didn't have any scheduled obligations. No job, school assignments, important meetings, a competition to prepare for. We didn't have a piano, so I couldn't feel obligated to practice. For years, I'd crammed my day planner full, making sure every 15-minute increment was filled with blue ink. Nothing in the world made me more uncomfortable than blank space on my calendar. And today, I was staring at a whole lot of blank space. Aaron returned at 5 o'clock that evening with a sunburn. His hair was matted and sticky, his dress shirt marked with sweat stains. For the next several months, he would be going door to door, knocking and introducing himself as the newest Goodwin financial representative in town. How was your day, he asked, dropping his bag to the floor. Should I tell him the truth, that I pushed Danny in the playground swing until we were both so hot and sweaty that we spent two hours cooling off in the pool? Then when I laid him down for a nap, I also fell asleep for two hours? 
We had a good day, was all I offered. How about you? On Tuesday, Aaron came home at noon and drank a gallon of water. I finished unpacking and organized the linen cupboard this morning, I told him. He leaned against the sink, breathing heavily, and couldn't answer. He simply wiped his forehead and nodded. What are you going to do this afternoon? Aaron put his lunch plate in the sink and looked with dread at the door. It would be even hotter this afternoon than it had been this morning. I didn't know how to answer his question. I would put Danny down for a nap, then what? Rearrange the furniture we had just moved in? I tried to think of more productive things to do than sitting around in the apartment. Let's go get your daddy a treat, I said, buckling Danny into his car seat and hefting the seat out to my Oldsmobile. I burned my fingers on the door handle and wished for covered parking. The nearest grocery store was located in Sun City West and was staffed by no one younger than age 60. Welcome to Safeway, cheered a friendly gray-haired greeter whose name tag said Nola. When Nola spotted Danny sitting in the cart, I thought she might have a heart attack. (gasps) What do we have here? Seeing a baby in Sun City was a rarity comparable to spotting a dodo bird. She smiled so big she nearly popped out her dentures. Everyone, look, it's a baby! In no time we were accosted as if we were the Beatles making a surprise appearance at Woodstock. Would he like a sticker? I nodded. Nola's arthritic fingers made several attempts at unpeeling the sticker. She placed it on Danny's chest and rubbed it in three times. There you go, son! Danny smiled. Nola giggled. We left the store one hour later with three helium balloons, free bakery cookies, a lollipop, face paint, and an I Love Safeway pin. In between being the guest stars of the geriatric parade, I'd managed to put Aaron's favorite candy bar, some white bread, and a gallon of milk into the cart. We drove to his office, but Aaron wasn't there, so I left a note with the candy bar and Gatorade and chatted with Carly, his office administrator, who mentioned that Aaron got a call to visit a man whose wife just died and needed help settling her trust. It sounded promising. I smiled with the news. It would be good for Aaron to land a big deal, I told Carly. He's afraid that people think he's too young to handle their money. He's thinking of tinting his hair gray. Gray hair would not help. Carly took a sip from her soda mug. His face has no wrinkles. He looks like he's 15. Having two little mouths to feed will probably age him a little, I patted my stomach. Then I waved goodbye to Carly as she answered the ringing phone. I left feeling exhilarated. The adult conversation had been energizing. It felt good to be outside of my apartment and getting better acquainted with another woman in this new city. That evening, I was in the kitchen dicing an onion when Aaron walked through the front door slowly. His shoulders slumped. He dropped his bag on the floor and plopped down at the card table. I don't know if we're going to have any commission income this month. The pay period ends Friday. I haven't made a sale. It's okay. I wasn't expecting any commission pay for several months. I slid the onions into a saute pan and set to work dicing a carrot. We knew it would take time to build up the business. I know, but it's frustrating. I get so close, and then the sale falls through. Aaron looked at Danny, who was playing with blocks. He looked at me and my growing belly. He looked around the apartment. He looked shell-shocked. You okay? Yeah, Aaron shook his head like he was snapping out of a trance. Then he came behind me, wrapping his arms around my waist. In a peppier tone, he said, How was your day? What did you do today? We went grocery shopping and we came to see you. Didn't you get my note? Well, yeah, thanks, I did. What else did you do? Um, what else did he think I should have done today? Should I have done more? 
Aaron let go of his hold and looked through the cupboards. Where are the Doritos? I thought you went grocery shopping today. Oh, I did, but we just got milk. I don't have my coupons and grocery list organized yet. The new ads come in the mail tomorrow. Aaron morphed back into his somber trance, closed the cupboard door. What's for dinner? He asked absently, trudging up the stairs without looking at me and without waiting for an answer. In one day at college, I would have taken two tests, attended three meetings, written a paper, practiced two hours of piano, and talked to at least 20 different people. Today, I had gone to a store, had one real adult conversation, and didn't even remember to buy Doritos. This mothering gig was new to me, and obviously, I wasn't doing it right. I wasn't doing enough. After Aaron fell asleep, I sat in the recliner downstairs, conversing with Laya and wondering what I needed to do during the day to be more impressive to Aaron. Does Aaron think I'm a freeloader, I asked, living off his hard work without giving anything in return? Neither Aaron nor I wanted to send our kids to daycare, but our roles didn't feel equal. He was burning his feet walking up and down every street in Sun City Grand knocking on doors. Meanwhile, I was sitting in an air-conditioned apartment with a nine-month-old who sleeps through the night and naps twice a day. Once the next baby was born, I knew I would be busier, but these three months in between felt like an eternity. For an accomplishment-aholic, life as a stay-at-home mom seemed horrifically unproductive. Laya and I detested the image of the bonbon-eating, soap-opera-watching housewife, lounging all day in a bathrobe and fuzzy slippers while the husband worked hard to bring home the bacon. You'd better not become one of those women, Laya had warned me before I got married. Absolutely not. We'd agreed to be the antithesis of that woman and to never be a freeloader. Laya said, what you need to do is make sure that every day you are working equally as hard or even harder than Aaron and find a way to contribute to the family income. What could I do while Danny slept from this 900-square-foot apartment with its fresh paint and new carpet to work as hard or harder than Aaron? The parameters seemed so limited. How could I contribute to our family income without a paycheck? That's when I decided to become personally responsible to pay off all our debt, much of which included Aaron's student loans and the business investment gone bad, as well as our car loan and my wedding diamond. I would pay it all off by saving money. Aaron might be the breadwinner, but I would be the bread saver. I would chip away at our debt one 35-cent grocery coupon at a time. Thursday morning, I dreaded Aaron leaving for work again. It had been a long three days. See you at lunch, he said, kissing me goodbye. I'll be here. I stared at the door a long time after it had closed. I am going nowhere. I cleaned up breakfast, read Danny every one of our board books again, understanding why they are called board books, and laid him down for his morning nap. No matter how much I fought against it, this was the truth. I had become a stay-at-home mother. I had become a stay-at-home mother by default. The word default has two meanings. One, it connotes a failure to meet an obligation or expectation, and this is exactly what had happened. Our internet business had failed. Now we had a hefty monthly business loan payment and zero business income. Default hints a lapse of judgment, a miss, an overlook, a mistake. But it couldn't have been Aaron's fault for enthusiastically jumping on board when I wanted to buy the same internet retail package that I was selling to business-minded adventurers. Nor how could Galaxy Plaza be blamed for believing that every person with a home computer would be clicking and ordering before the year's end. 
Who could have known it would take 20 years to shift the public's habits away from brick-and-mortar shopping? But the word default can also mean a predetermined setting that the mechanism will automatically revert to when no other alternative is selected by the user. Clocks default to midnight. Calculators default to zero. Computers default to basic programming. Mothers default to caring for their offspring. We house, feed, and grow them within our bodies for nine months. Naturally, we provide for their sleep, shelter, and food. This is a mother's instinct at its strongest. It's our default setting. So was becoming a stay-at-home mother the best decision I ever made, or the best decision I never made? How did I end up on this road? Did I make a turn, or did I fail to make a turn? A commotion to my right draws my attention. A violent gust of wind blows across the desert floor and sweeps a cloud of sand across the road in front of me. I squint my eyes and begin to cough violently as the spray of sand works its way through the ventilation system. For several minutes, I'm driving blind. Dry land areas throughout the world, such as the Sudan, the Arabian Peninsula, and Arizona, are prone to intense dust storms called haboobs. A haboob arrives suddenly, carried on an atmospheric gravity current. It is usually the result of a collapsed thunderstorm in a drought-afflicted land. And isn't that how it goes? The teasing smell of promissory rain in the air collapses into a dry wind, pelting weathered faces with razor-sharp slaps of sand. In no time, the dust fury engulfs my car. The coughing triggers another contraction. My abdominal muscles grow tighter, like a leather belt cinching around my organs. I can't see anything. As if being lost and in labor in the desert weren't challenge enough, nature has sent a swirling gray cloud of doom to compound the situation. Again, I question if I'm traveling in the right direction and should continue forward, or if I should stop and turn around and go back home, or call for help. How did I get on this road in the first place? I think back to driving past Phoenix, and I can't remember. Did I make a turn, or did I fail to make a turn? The fact that I can't remember how I got here is why I'm so confused. Was I paying attention? Did I consciously take this road? Or did I get here by default? By our second week, I had a little routine. After breakfast, I took Danny in his stroller for a walk to the park with a pond, where we threw breadcrumbs to the ducks and fish. I pushed him on the swing until he was worn out enough for a morning nap. While Danny slept upstairs, I closed the downstairs office door and crunched numbers and made phone calls. I filled a notebook with insurance quotes from every company listed in the phone book, comparing rates before Progressive ever thought of doing it for me. I transferred loans to credit cards with zero-interest introductory offers and spent hours haggling with customer service representatives to waive transfer fees. When Danny woke up, we ran errands, discovered the Surprise City Library, an old one-bedroom house-turned-library with two shelves of children's books, or spent an hour in the pool until Aaron came home for lunch. After lunch, I read books and sang songs to Danny until he and I fell asleep. I tried to impress Aaron with a home-cooked dinner, something that looked fancy but cost pennies. In our church, Aaron's position was Elders Quorum President, a fancy title which really means CEO of Moving. Mormon women are really good at delivering casseroles for new babies and funerals, while Mormon men excel at helping people move in and move out. Our area seemed to have a lot of new move-ins, and Aaron helped move three to four families a week, 
So while he was gone at night and on Saturdays, I did what every good stay-at-home mother in the late 1990s knew she was supposed to do. I scrapbooked. I was trying to work hard. I was trying to be productive. I hoped I was doing enough for Aaron to be impressed by my domesticity. I checked the mailbox often for my stay-at-home mother transcript, but it never came, so how could I know if I was doing this mothering thing right? How did I know if I had mastered Spaghetti 101 and could move on to coursework in Meatloaf 202? How could I know if I had in some way failed Danny because he was 10 months old and not crawling yet? Did I choose to become a stay-at-home mother, or did I end up here by default? A default to tradition? A default to religion? A default to my natural instincts and inclinations? A default to culture? Was the decision to be a stay-at-home mother a deliberate decision? A noble decision? A self-sacrificing decision? Or a lack of decision? Was it the best decision I've ever made, or the best decision I never made? Was it by default, or by fault? I could only draw one conclusion. The fact that I wasn't receiving any awards, certificates, or motherhood scholarships meant simply I wasn't doing enough. I needed to work harder, be more impressive. I needed to wow the judges. This is Malia Warner. Thank you for listening to Chapter 4 of Lies of the Magpie. I hope you enjoyed it. I will meet you back here with Chapter 5 next week. Until then, salahatle. And my son has been teasing me for my Zulu accent, or lack of Zulu accent, from the last episode. So I've been practicing. Salahatle. Stay well, my friends. <laughs>